Welcome to New Sound Church's weekly podcast. We are a church located in Palm Beach County, Florida, and we are so glad that you're listening to this week's message from our pastor, Pastor Josh Mon. For more information about New Sound Church, you can visit our website at www.newsound.church and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, man, we're so glad that you're here, and I have about uh, eight hours worth of sermon that I want to give to you today in the next about 35 to 40 minutes. And so if you've got your app on your phone, the New Sound app, the notes will come up in there and you can follow along. If you don't have that, you can go old school and write it down. But whatever you do, be a great note taker because you go, I'll remember it. No, you won't. I don't remember it. I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you what point three is by the time I've had a nap. And so like, just take great notes so you can go back and look at this stuff later, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37, and I'm going to read this text first, and then we'll kind of, we'll go to work a little bit on it, see what it can mean for us today. Genesis 37, one night, Joseph had a dream. I want to stop right there and give you just the little, the slightest bit of context. Joseph was the son, in fact, the favorite son of a guy named Jacob. Jacob also went by another name. His name was Israel, and Israel was the son of a guy named Isaac, the son of a guy named Abraham. So you've heard in the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob. And so that's who we're talking about. That's his daddy. This guy comes from a pretty powerful family, a pretty important family, pretty significant family. But he's, the, he's not the baby baby, but he's the favorite. Anybody the favorite in here at your house? Yeah. And then to all of you that didn't raise your hand, it's not our fault. <laughs> it's not our fault. We're the favorites, but whatever. So... And so one night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. He said, listen to this dream. And he said, we were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up. And then your bundles all gathered around and bowed down before mine. And his brothers responded, oh, so you think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think that you're going to reign over us? And they hated him all the more. Because of his dreams. I think it's interesting that the Bible goes to great lengths to let us know a couple of times that they hated him and they hated him for a reason. They didn't hate him because he was the favorite. They hated him because he had a vision for his life. And when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, look, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. They they actually saw him in the Bible says in this same chapter, they looked up and they said, look, here comes the dreamer. And I wonder if anybody would say that about you. I wonder if people used to say that about you, but they were successful in beating the dream out of you. And I, I believe that there are different people in your life. There are going to be people that call the dream out. There are going to be people that try to squash the dream. What's interesting about this moment is if God had spoken to my father's favorite son, and I knew that this vision was from God, and he said, I have a dream Like there's, like why wouldn't you be like, oh, like their response always blows my mind because then they proceed to plan to kill him. They they proceed to plan to sell him into slavery. They proceed to plan to destroy the life of this guy where I would, I think I would have been the exact opposite understanding that if I've seen anything about my father's life, you can't thwart the plans of God. And I would go, oh, God told you, you're going to be king. Can I be the prince? Like, I would like to be number two. I'd maybe like to be in charge of the military. Or who's the food guy? Who's going to be your food guy? Like, just 
collecting the food, sampling foods. I would like to do that if you're going to be king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I would have done that, but instead what they proceed to do is they try to beat him up and try to put him in place and try to make him feel small because people dissatisfied with their place in this life will always try and put you in yours. That's happened to you. You've actually gone to somebody and said, I have an idea. There's a company I want to start. There's a small group I want to lead. There's a team I want to lead. There's a church I want to start. There's a dream in my life. There's a dream in my heart. And a lot of people in your life, the first thing that comes out of their mouth next is the 15 reasons why that could never happen and why you could never do it. Now, before I go any farther and kind of breaking down this text, I, I want to do something for you because I need you to understand your Bible is a book of examples, not exceptions. And this Joseph that we talk about is not a mythical creature. He's not something that we created in our Bible that didn't exist in the real world. In fact, um, on a rock, this is just north on the north side of the Nile River, um, these hieroglyphs. And if you could read this, um, what you would know that this is speaking of is a man that lived hundred to be 110 years old. Your Bible actually speaks to a man that lived that long. That begins to speak about how this man was number two in all of the land. That this man was the grand vizier, a grand wizard, a grand seer of things um, in the land of Egypt. And was second only to Pharaoh. This is what this says. This actually says that there were seven lean years, and then there were seven years of abundance. Years later in Joseph's life, after he had gone through devastation of being sold into slavery, put in prison, accused of things that he never did, he was actually raised up to be the number two person in Pharaoh's house. The grand vizier, this guy that prophesied of seven years of feasting and followed by seven years of famine. And this guy, Joseph, actually said that all of this would happen until he died at the age of 110, as your Bible records it. And this says all of this right here on this rock on the north side of the Nile. And then so this guy that was incredibly intelligent, that was able to see things that nobody else could see and foresee problems that nobody else could for C actually came to Pharaoh and said, God's given me a vision. There's going to be seven years that are going to be amazing and then seven years of great famine. And um, so we need to collect all of the grain in the land so that we can ration it out through the seven years of famine. The same guy engineered the first pyramid that was built called the Step Pyramid or the Great Pyramid. And what would later become all of the catacombs and tombs underneath the pyramids that would become the burial chamber chambers of pharaohs, in the first pyramid ever created, those tombs were grain silos. And that's what you're looking at right there. The grain silo of the, of the first step pyramid created. Um, now your Bible says that years later a guy named Moses would come in to... The land, he would be born, and he would see, the, he would hear the cries of his people. God says, I'm going to set my people free. They've now been put into slavery because the pharaohs that Joseph helped uh, kind of forgot that Joseph had helped them, and time passes, and people left to themselves will make it about themselves. And so Joseph is now forgotten in all the things he did, but the Israelites are growing in number and mass, and the pharaoh begins to believe that they're going to overthrow them. And so he puts them into slavery. When Moses delivers the people from slavery, it was a slavery that was forced on them later, not one that they lived in when they first got there. In fact, 
um, your Bible says that the, God's people were in this place called Ramesses. Uh, actually, the place was called Pyramses, and but that wasn't the name that would have been used when Joseph was alive. It was a place called Avaris. This is the place called Avaris. And all of the homes in Avaris were built under Egyptian construction, except for one compound directly in the center that was built as a palace. It was obviously built as for somebody incredibly important, but there were some things that were incredibly significant. There were columns introduced. The Egyptians didn't use columns in their construction. And significantly enough, there were 12 columns in the center of the main living uh, quarters that had some very important meaning for the owner of that home. Now, you would maybe know that Joseph had some siblings. And his siblings would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. On that same compound, on the back side of the compound, was some tombstones and some graves, some grave sites. Archaeologists uncovered 12 graves, 12 graves that were not all that unique and all that, not all that spectacular all around the back side of this land in this Semitic region just north of the capital. But on the end, facing west, was a tomb shaped like a pyramid. A pyramid was reserved for people of royalty or of great importance in the Egyptian circles. But it was incredibly strange that a tomb and a pyramid in Egypt would be facing any other direction but north. You see, the Egyptians worshipped the sun god, and so all their tombs faced north. But this one was pointed west because the owner of this grave was pointed back home. When archaeologists uncovered the inside of this tomb, they found a statue of a Canaanite man with light skin, red hair. Egyptians didn't have red hair. And a coat that had multiple colors on it. And a crook across his right shoulder to symbolize he was a foreigner. Now what's interesting is when they excavated the tombs, of all 12 of the other tombs, there, was, there were bodies in those tombs. But there was no body remaining in this when they opened it up. You said, why is that significant? Because in Joseph's dying words, he asked, whenever you guys leave here, take me with you. Don't leave me here for all of eternity buried in this foreign land. I want to be buried in the land of my ancestors. And so when Moses... Moved out on the Exodus, the Bible records in the Exodus that he kept his promise and he went back and he got the coffin of Joseph and brought it with him. In fact, that coffin would move to a place called Shechem, which is in modern day Palestine, where it was buried and that place was revered as a holy site for generations. When modern archaeologists uncovered this tomb in Shechem that had long been, been believed to be the tomb of Joseph, of our Bible, when they opened it up, across this body, mummified in the Egyptian custom, laid an Egyptian sword. Joseph was a real man. And your Bible is a real book. And because of that, you then have the right to look to it and say, God, if that's how you can do something for them, to them, through them, then I claim that for my life and I want it for myself. 
So your Bible is not a book of exceptions. It is a book of examples. And so today I want to talk to you about the dream. There's three people in this room. There are dreamers. There are dreamers in this room that you have something that you're chasing. Maybe it's to raise a family where all of your kids would follow God and serve him with all of your life. That's a great and it's a bold dream. And I would encourage you to continue to pursue it. Some of you, it's, man, I just, the dream of starting a business or starting a small group or, or uh, maybe starting a church one day or moving on to the mission field or, or, or reaching your coworkers or doing something incredible, starting a company that nobody started, create something that people haven't created yet. You have a dream in your heart. And I want to tell you today that not only do you have the right to pursue that dream, but I believe if you serve Jesus, you have an obligation to serve that dream. They looked out and they saw him coming and they said, here comes the dreamer. There's something different about him. We have tried to beat this out of him, but he won't let it go. I want to ask you a question that I believe could be the most important question of your life. See, I believe that the greatest two days of your life are the day that you're made and the day that you find out why. And so I want to ask you this question. So many people that serve on the staff, so many people that move their families to help start new sounds, so many people that serve here every week. I've, I've sat down and I've asked this question hundreds and hundreds of times, and I want to ask you today. If time, money, education, experience, and current commitments weren't an issue, and you were guaranteed not to fail, what would you do with your life? You see, the problem is, when you live just long enough, you believe that you have lost the right to dream. And for some of you today, you don't even believe that you still have the right to even ask that question anymore. And I need you to hear me. If you hear nothing else for the rest of the day, you don't just have uh, the right to ask that question. I believe in the name of Jesus, you have a responsibility to ask that question and to pursue that answer wherever it will take you. So if all of the excuses that you've currently made about how busy you are and how hard it will be and how much it will cost and how long it will take, if you removed all of those things as the starting point for why you haven't pursued your dreams and you just said, God, I don't know how long I have on this earth, Give me five more minutes or 50 more years. Whatever you say, I don't care, but I have a dream and I'm going to pursue it. There are dreamers and I need you today to respond to the thing that God has been speaking to you. You have the right to pursue that dream. So there are dreamers. And then how many of you know this group? They're the critics. You met them? That the minute that you bring up a dream, they start giving you the 28 reasons why it's not going to work. They looked at him and they said, hey, come on, let's kill him. Let's just kill him. Let's get rid of this dreamer. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. They show up on Instagram and Facebook. They show up. around the water cooler, 
Sometimes they're showing up in your own house. Because most people would rather die in the toxic than live in the unknown. Your dreams are horrifying to them. And so because they're so scared of your dream, they have to transfer their fear onto your spirit so that you will stop doing it because it's too horrifying for them to think about. And there has never been anybody in the world that had a big, bold dream that didn't face violent opposition. In fact, Albert Einstein said it like this, and he had a couple of ideas about things. Great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. I'm telling you, you will have somebody give you the 38 reasons why you can't be successful in whatever thing you have every time you speak it out of your mouth. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. And small minds discuss people. So you're going to have dreamers. You're going to have critics. But maybe this might even be the worst group. You're going to have the distracted majority that have just fallen into the trap that the goal of this life is to abandon the dream and then just work and pay the power bill. And then work and pay the power bill. And then work and pay the power bill. And get the kids up and get the kids out and get the kids home and get the kids asleep and get the kids up and get the kids out and get the kids home and get the kids asleep. And that if we can just get caught in the repetition of life, like if we can just get caught in that madness, then we will just never even pursue. I'm not going to stop you from chasing your dream, but I'm going to believe that God never made me with one. And it's sadder, I think. Because we've just let the busyness and the chaos of life scream louder than the thing that you were made to do. The distracted majority said, let's just throw him in a pit. We'll throw him into this empty cistern in the wilderness, and then he will die. And look, they said, without our having to lay a hands on him, we won't have to do anything. We can just let his dream die by neglect. And I see a lot of dreams that are dying by neglect. See, I, I think we are at an exciting time in the history of the local church. I really do. Like, if you study Christianity through the course of... Uh, our country, just our nation, that the lowest, uh, the lowest year of church attendance in the history of the United States. Do you know what year it was? 1776. The year that we said we want to be free, we got too free. The year that we said, like, you can't control me, I do what I want. We decided not to go to church anymore. The year of highest church attendance in the United States was the 1960s of the, the history of the entire U.S. And then something began to happen. The world kind of kept progressing forward, and we just kind of didn't. And we woke up one day, and church was pretty bad. And we had kind of got to ask what a person that had never gone to church would even think about all of this stuff that we were doing. And so um, you got great Aunt Ethel with her personal tambourine ministry, and you got Brother Ralph that doesn't care if you fall asleep or not because he didn't enjoy writing the sermon, so he doesn't care if you enjoy hearing it. 
And we did that for about 40 years until church attendance began to dwindle so much that every major denomination in the United States has been on decline for 25 years. In the last 35 years, 80% of the young people that have left high school have left the church and have not come back. And every single year, 3,000 churches close and will never reopen. Just in the United States alone. And you go, well, how in the world are you saying that that's a good season right now for the local church? Because it's time for the dreamers to step up. I think apathy, not a lack of resource or ability, is killing the American church. It's just apathy. It's just sitting on the sidelines waiting for somebody else to step up and make all of the difference with whatever it is that they have. And I am just believing God that this is going to be a church where everybody who calls on the name of Jesus is actually willing to roll up their sleeves and pursue the dream that God has for them with every single thing inside of them. We have actually never seen a church in the history of this thing called church where everybody in it was willing to pursue the thing regardless of the risk or the cost. Now, I'm not asking you to go through an explore class so that you can go become a greeter. Like that God had somehow called me to be a pastor and a leader and a church planter, but you maybe just handing out worship guides. I think we've peaked on your potential. See, I don't believe that at all. I just believe that while we are pursuing the call that God has on our life, we probably should serve and make it about somebody else, or otherwise the dream that we're pursuing will be our dream instead of the dream that God uses for us to bring lost people home. And so I think that we have this amazing opportunity where you and I can lock arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and do something in Palm Beach County that's never happened. And we have the ability, but it's going to take you not saying, Josh, what is your dream for my life? I don't have one. I have one for mine, though. And I won't let anybody wrestle it out of my hands. But I do believe that, be, that my dream is helping you find yours. I can't imagine one day what it will look like to go to heaven and meet thousands of people that you impacted, that I never met, that just chased down their dream because you were bold enough to chase down yours. That's all I want to do. So whatever that would look like in your life, we're trying to figure out how to get out of your way so that you can do that. So how do we chase a dream? How do we do that? How, how do we do that? Let me get practice. See, I, I think there's nothing that we can lose that we can't get back as long as we don't lose the dream. So when I see marriages quit, they lost the dream. When I see people give up on their kids, they lost the dream. When I see kids give up on their passions, they lost the dream. When I see people get into the mundane of just trying to survive life, I see they, they just lost the dream. And so I'm begging you to call back to that original thing. When we were kids, nobody had to teach you how to dream. Like we all wanted to be something amazing and exciting and, and world-changing like an astronaut or a ninja turtle. And we just knew, God, if you would just... Like, I just, I knew for a fact as a young eight-year-old kid, if somebody would give me a sword without any training whatsoever, I would have been phenomenal with a sword. I just knew I would have been. Well, then over time, people just begin, they're great at beating the dream out of you where then you believe that the goal of your life is to survive it. But I checked this morning before I came up to preach. The mortality rate is still at 100%. And so we're not going to have forever. We don't live forever. So what are we going to do that is forever? And I believe that you owe it to yourself. I believe you owe it to your family. And if you've given your life to Jesus, I believe you owe it to the God that saved you to ask the question. So how do you do it? First, 
You got to find the right friends to share it with. It's huge. Joseph didn't get thrown into a pit for having a dream. He got thrown into a pit for only having small-minded, simple-thinking people to share it with. All he needed was one encourager in the whole room and he would have been okay. But as you read the story, the Bible says that he was thrown into the pit. Out of the pit, then he was then sold into slavery. Out of slavery, then he would spend the next 17 years paying for crimes he didn't commit, serving people that didn't worship his God, living a life that was outside of God's best for his life, but he was stayed faithful. I imagine we get a very different version of Joseph's life if he had had the right friends to share it with. You got to find some people that when you say, man, I got this, I have a dream that they would help you pursue it. You know, my wife and I, we're, we're, we're wired very differently. You know, I, like we always say, the example I've always used is like, you know, if I say I want to build a bowling alley, like I've already won the first game in my mind and she's trying to figure out how you would go about cleaning the shoes. Like she's, we're like, we just, we think about it completely different. Like it just, everything is different. And so I had, a, I had trouble sometimes when I would go to her and I would say, hey, I've got this dream about we could do this or we could go here or we could try this or we could plant this church and I've just been dreaming and dreaming. And her default, because not because she was a critic and not because she didn't believe in me, but because that's her personality, she would immediately, like as soon as I would put out the dream, she would immediately have like the 38 things that of course I'd never thought about of why this wouldn't work. And it started to destroy me. And it got me to the place where like, I, was, I, I was always super hesitant in fact, fearful to take my dream to her because I didn't think she would care for my dream. And so I told her one day, I said, hey, listen, I know that there's 38 things that I'm not going to think about when I come up with this super brilliant idea that nobody's ever thought about ever before in the history of the world. But when I tell you the dream, will you just smile at me and say, if anybody can do it, you can. If anybody can do it, you can. And then... Let me go away feeling like I've done done something. And then tomorrow, bring me your Excel spreadsheet with the 38 things that I hadn't thought about. And so I'm not asking you to change and not care about the details. In fact, I think that's why we're great. And I think that's a big reason why this church has been so great. Um, but I'm asking you to put a little space between all the obstacles and the dream you got to find the right friends. If you haven't gotten into a small group, you've heard me say it already, you got to find a group. you got to find your people. you got to find some people that are going, if I, I don't know anybody that could pull that off but you, man, you got this. You can go do it. I uh, found this from uh, a medical doctor who said that having a friend, this was uh, published in a medical journal, said that to whom you can disclose your feelings is a major determinant of well-being. People with friends are actually healthier. They're less likely to get common colds, to develop fatal coronary disease, to develop physical impairments, or reductions in brain activity and functionality as they age. People with friends are more likely to survive the death of a spouse without any permanent loss of vitality. I'm not aware of any other factor, not diet, smoking, exercise, stress, genetics, drugs, and surgery that has a greater impact on our incidence of illness and chance of premature death than whether or not a person has close, meaningful 
friendships. Get a friend. Get a friend. Your life depends on it. He said, not smoking, not eating Nabisco. Now, I'm not advocating like a Marlboro Light Oreo small group. I'm not advocating that. You can live in freedom. So you got to have somebody to share it with. But then um, let me give you a couple thoughts. You got to have the right friends. And then this is what I need for you. You need to know your value. You need to understand your value because I don't know if you do. Let me say this to you. I don't know where you come from or what was spoken over you. I don't know if your father ever told you he was proud of you or not. I don't know if your mama said some things over you that were hurtful or not. But let me tell you something. Your family doesn't determine your worth. I come from where what, like, what, you know, when people would say, like, oh, we were poor growing up, but we never knew it. I'm always thinking, that's so dumb. Like, like it doesn't sound like y'all were poor enough. It sounded like you had a little room on the poverty spectrum where you could have gotten a little bit more poor. Because we were poor, and I was keenly aware. Very aware. But I developed early on that my place of origin did not determine my value. You see, Joseph's dad tried to determine his value, and it says it in Genesis 37. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob made a special gift for Joseph, a beautiful robe. He put this garment on him to try to say, this is how I'm going to show people that I care about you more than anybody else. But Joseph realized, in fact, the brothers knew the first thing they did was they tore off the symbolism of his father's love. But Joseph knew this jacket doesn't make me lovable. This jacket doesn't make me what you say I am. I've already have a predetermined value. Your job doesn't determine your worth. So listen to me, young people. You're picking college degrees and all that. Like you're picking career paths so that somebody will tell you, ooh, you're so smart. You're so smart. Oh my gosh, don't live your entire life waiting for somebody to tell you how smart you are. Go do something that you're passionate about. When you get up out of bed every day, you are chomping at the bed. Ain't nobody got to beg me to come to church on a Sunday. Like I love doing what I'm doing. I can't think of doing anything else in the world. I went and got a degree so that people would tell me that I was smart. And that thing sits on the bottom shelf of a desk that I never open. I, I, uh, my job doesn't determine my worth. In fact, when you look in the scriptures, when he was working in Potiphar's house, the Bible says that Joseph was a success in everything that he did. When he was accused of a crime that he didn't commit and he was thrown in jail, the Bible says that he was a success in everything that he did. It must mean that your status in the world's eyes doesn't have a whole lot to do with your status in the eyes of the Father. That your character is what makes you a success, not your position, not your house, not your car, not the things that you can go buy or the places you can go or the things that you can do. He said your job doesn't determine your worth. And then let me tell you this, the world doesn't determine your worth either. The Pharaoh came to him and he said, man, you're a pretty big deal. I'm going to put you in charge of everything. And then Pharaoh removed his ring and he, and he placed it on Joseph's finger and he dressed him in fine clothes and he hung a gold chain around his neck. Looked like Flava Flav. 
And for all of you that grew up when I did, he said, am I second in command? And Pharaoh said, yeah, boy. No? Your value is not determined by what somebody puts on you, but what by God has done in you. So they tried to put a cloak on him and say, you have value, and the brothers ripped it off. They tried to put a title on him, and he lost it. They tried to put a ring on him in fancy clothes. But the Bible said that he was a success when he was the worst in the world's eyes and when he was the best because his heart stayed true to the God that made him, and he never let go of the dream. When they saw a rapist, God saw a man of integrity. When they saw a spoiled kid, God saw a redeemer of people. When they saw a slave, God saw someone he would use to save. When they saw a stranger, God saw a restorer of family. There is no thing that they can put on you, speak over you, add to you, or take from you that can change what God sees in you. He's already determined your value. He needs friends in your life to help you unlock it. And I am begging you today to tell the critics to be quiet, to listen to the voice of God and the people closest to you, and step in the thing that he has made you for. I don't care how old you are or how young. I don't care how educated or how uneducated, how experienced or how brand new. Step into the thing that God has for you because there's only one you. There's all kinds of copycats and there's all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of social media pretending out there. But the blessing that God has for your life is for you, for the real you, for the gifts that he put on you, for the blessing that he has for you. Step into it. But what are you going to have to do? This last thought as we close. You better prep now for the trial later. Don't be so foolish as to think you can step into a dream that will change this world or a family or your family at all and think that you will not get opposition. But it's okay because if you don't headbutt the devil every now and then, it's probably because you're running in the same direction. Every time I butt up against him, I just remind him of his future. How you respond to a trial says more about your past than it does about your future. See, I see that a lot of us, we get into a trial and we respond the same way we did last time. And so we have to go take that particular test all over again. It gets hard, we quit. Things don't go our way, we're out. And God said, that's fine, you can do that. But you're going to have to take this test again. And again, and again. Some of us aren't 40 years old. We're 19, 21 times. You're still circling the same mountain you were then. Letting somebody else determine your worth. Let somebody else determine your value. Let the world say what you are and who you are. And I came here today to tell you whose you are. My attitude is not based on what happened. I know you've been through some stuff. My attitude is not based on what has happened, but what, on what I have decided. I am, not a, I am not a thermometer. I'm a thermostat. I set the temperature. I set the temperature in my life with my attitude. Pits and prisons don't have to be punishments. They can be preparation. So I don't know where you are today. 
Some of you are circling the same mountain, failing the same test over and over and over and over and over. I've been there. Today, I came to tell you, it's time to pass the test. It's time to dig in. It's the first time to decide that you have the right people in your life that are speaking the right things into your life. There'll be critics. You're never going to do anything great if somebody's not telling you that you're not. You better have the right people in your life. You better expect a little opposition. But how you deal with it in this season is going to prep for the next. In fact, next week, I'm going to start a three-week series that I'm just calling Anonymous. You see, when we open up the Gospels, we see Jesus getting baptized and stepping into his ministry. It's our chapter 1. But it was his chapter 30. And how he immediately responded to adversity says a lot about what was happening in a hidden place when he was anonymous, when nobody knew or cared who he was. A lot of people say, I want to live a life like Jesus, but I need you to understand what that actually means if you look at the story of the Bible, is that it's a life that is about the hidden places, the things that nobody sees. And we're going to look at what the devil tried to do to get him off track on day one of his ministry and how you can step against that. So I want you to come back next week and I want you to bring a friend. But today, for some of you, if you're 100% honest, you can't step into the dream because you don't know the creator of the dream. The world is going to give you all kinds of things that are good for your life. I'm not asking for a good idea. I'm asking you to chase the God idea in your life. And you can't find that. You can't begin to put your finger on that until you step into a relationship with him. You say, how do I know the will of the Father? Well, I need you to know that his first desire is for you to know him and to love him and to commit your life to him. And then out of that place... He'll begin to give you the steps necessary to peel off some of your yesterday and help you see a clear tomorrow. And so today, as we close, I'm going to pray for you right there in your seat. No moving around, no looking around. We're just going to be here for just one more moment. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's pray. Would you pray right there in your seat? For some of you today, You've given up on the dream. For some of you today, you didn't even know you had the right to dream. Because you forgot to step into the relationship or maybe never knew to step into a relationship with the creator of dreams. God saw you in your sin and your brokenness. He saw every bad decision that you would make, every moment of pride that you would live in. He saw everything that you would do that would create distance between you and him. And when he saw you at your worst moment, the Bible says that while you were still in the middle of your brokenness, while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. And he said, I'm gonna pay for those mistakes Because if I don't, 
You're going to have to spend your entire life focused on your past. And I need a people that are focused on a future. And so right there, for some of you today, you've never really turned your life over to Jesus Christ, to the dream, where you've never really said, God, today, in the best way I know how, I commit my life to you. And so right there, it's this simple, heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm not going to bring you down front. I'm not going to whisk you off to some double top secret prayer room. But right there in your seat, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray. God, I acknowledge the sin of my life. Jesus, I believe that you died for me so that I could live for you. You paid for my sins. Now wash me white as snow. And right now, I commit my life to you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Change me. No looking around. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. Come on, if that's you on the count of three, I just want you to slip your hand up and look at me. Just And all you're saying today is just, hey, pastor, I'm taking this step today. Jesus, I give you my life. Come on, one, two, three, all over the room. Just slip your hand up. Come on, slip them up. Look at me. Come on, yes, praise God. Come on, I see you. Yes, yes, yes. Praise God. I'm so proud of you. Come on. Yes, I see you in the back. Just slip your hands down now. Slip your hands down. And then, church, right now, I want you to pray. God, today, we turn our lives over to you, Jesus. God, today, we ask you to ignite the fire that we've, got, that we've let grow cold. God, I'm asking you today to begin to stir this thing inside of us. God, I'm asking you today to begin to well up inside of us this thing that we had let grow dormant. God, I'm asking you to speak this dream into our heart. God, I'm asking you today to bring friends around us that are going to encourage us and support us. God, I'm asking you today to help us step into a bright future. And for those of us that have been plagued by a yesterday that is less than what God has for us, God, I pray today that we would think about our future. God, I thank you for what you're doing today. I thank you for the dream in our heart and we will step into it today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, come on, give God a hand of praise. He's worthy. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message from Pastor Josh Bonnie. If your life has been impacted by today's message, we would love for you to share your story with us by emailing story at newsound.church. Join us again next week for another inspirational message from New Sound Church.